welcome to episode 39 of Africa Past and Present, the podcast about African history, politics and culture. I'm Peter Lim and my co-host Peter Alegi will be listening from afar in KwaZulu-Natal. Our guest today is Franco Bacchiesi, Assistant Professor in the Department of African American and African Studies at Ohio State University. He also previously lectured at the universities of the Witwatersrand in South Africa and Bologna, Italy. Dr. Bacchiesi has written widely on South African social movements and labor, bridging sociology and history, has compared labor and economics in South Africa and Nigeria, as well as working on class fragmentation and social citizenship. With a PhD from WITS on social citizenship and transformations of wage labor in the making of post-apartheid South Africa, he is the editor with Tom Bramble of Rethinking the Labor Movement in the New South Africa, published by Ashgate in 2003. And he has a new book in the pipeline featuring themes in our discussion today. Welcome, Franco. Hey, nice to be here. You're giving a seminar today on uh, precarious liberation, workers, the state, and contested social citizenship in post-apartheid South Africa. And in your earlier work, you wrote on the precariousness of workers' lives uh, on the East Rand in, in earlier times, terms that seem to be still very appropriate today with soaring unemployment and prices. I wonder if we could start by you just elaborating on this concept of precariousness and what it means in, in South Africa today and for ordinary South Africans. Well, I mean, the way in which I use the concept of precariousness for this research project tries to problematize an understanding of precariousness of employment as part of sociological literature, sociological discussions. I mean, my basic argument in this work is that uh, the the post-apartheid liberation in South Africa embodied a what I define as a redemptive promise of employment, meaning that the black working class, the organized black working class, were central in the struggle against apartheid, and particularly through participation of trade unions in community struggles and so on. And that centrality of organized labor in the anti-apartheid struggle and in the struggle for democracy was was premised on the idea that a new democratic government would bring a path of social emancipation whereby work could be rescued from the abuse, the uh, exploitation, the racialized despotism of the past and could achieve a level of dignity and inclusion and, uh, and, 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 and social citizenship rights. In other words, in my, uh, in my view, this redemptive promise of employment or making employment the foundation of citizenship rights in a new democracy was central to uh, struggles against apartheid and, and, and pro-democracy struggles in South Africa. And part of that idea is that work has always been very precarious for the black majority of the South African working class, precarious in the sense of unstable, vulnerable, insecure, and subject to all sorts of abuse. And, and oppression and the South African working class, the organized working class trade unions in many ways articulated a discourse in, uh, according to which 
in a new democracy, work was no longer supposed to be that precarious. Work was supposed to be a condition of stability, in inclusion, and dignity. And things have turned out to be quite different, though. I mean, the South African transition to post-apartheid democracy combined uh, uh, political liberation with economic liberalization in, the way in, in a way in which uh, the work, employment, have remained substantially precarious for a, for, a, for a large majority of the South African working class, according to uh, recent sociological studies, for example, like Eddie Webster's uh, an, an analysis of the South African labor market. Today, stable jobs with benefits cover maybe one-third of the employed population in South Africa, one-third to 40 percent. The majority continue to live in a highly precarious uh, conditions, meaning vulnerable, meaning insecure, meaning deprived of benefits. In other words, under the new democracy, employment has not fulfilled its redemptive promise. In fact, it's, it's been uh, going down. Yes. Just yesterday I was reading a report about, I think it was a 23% decline in manufacturing yes. jobs. Yeah, I mean, with the, with, 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 with the recession. And that's an interesting thing. I mean, the recession has hit uh, formal employment quite badly in South Africa, but the interesting thing is that things weren't that good even before. I mean, in South Africa, the, the unemployment rate has remained remarkably high. I mean, no one knows actually how, how it is, uh, uh, what is the actual unemployment rate in South Africa. It's a very polit politically fraught kind of exercise to, 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 to determine how many people are unemployed in South Africa, but official estimates put it at 26% right now. And even in in, at times of high economic growth, unemployment never went remarkably down. I mean, even when the economy was growing at a 4 5% rate, which was before the current recession, before 2008. Now, last year, there was negative growth, therefore unemployment increased even more than that. But apart from unemployment, the problem, the, the employment crisis in South Africa is not just a matter of unemployment. I mean, it's a matter of the fact that the majority of jobs that are being created, I mean, job creation is largely taking place in occupations like retail, tourism, call centers, and so on, that are essentially insecure, that or are short, essentially short-term. Short short term, like for the World Cup and or for the, the Yes, World constru Cup construction, construction jobs for the World mm. Cup, I mean, short-term jobs that are highly unstable and insecure. So in that sense, work has remained a remarkably precarious experience for South African workers, for most South African workers, even after democratization. And it has been, it has been, it has remained precarious in terms of employment instability. It has remained precarious in terms of the ina the inadequacy of employment to provide for a decent social existence for workers and their and 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 and, and, their, and, and, their, and their families. There was this shocking, I would say, uh, report produced in two thousand and seven by the Human Science Research Council. Uh, economist Miriam Altman was the author of that report, saying basically that if we define uh, the poverty level in South Africa at 2,500 rand per month, which is more or less the, the threshold for income tax exemption. It's, uh, if, you are, if you are poorer than that, you don't pay taxes because you are too poor. If we define poverty in that way, then two-thirds, 65 percent, uh, more or less, of South African workers can be defined as poor. And almost half of them live with less than 1,000 rand per month, which is, uh, I mean, like $120 a month right now, which is extremely poor. And that, that is quite, that is, that captures, I mean, if there's a data, if there's a figure that captures the, 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 this persistent vulnerability of employment in South Africa, that, that's it. But that is only part of, the, it's only half of the story when it comes to how I define, I look at precariousness. There is another, I mean, that is the sociological side of 
employment precariousness, instability, insecurity, vulnerability, lack of benefits, lack of social provisions. But I also argue that precariousness in the conditions of uh, democratization in South Africa acquire an, acquires a new meaning that is very different from the old precariousness that was determined determined by racialized despotism, coercive labor migration, and 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 managerial abuse in the workplace. In, in under conditions of democracy, precariousness has also to has also to do with the fact that this unstable, insecure, frail world of employment contrasts with the fact that the new government, the, the government that has been run by the ANC since 1994, has emphasized work and employment at the normative level as the basis, as the condition of virtuous citizenship. I mean, the, 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 there is a very powerful governmental imagination, a very powerful governmental discourse that over the years has praised employment and economic participation and labor market participation and economic activity as conditions of social integration as what a virtuous citizen is expected to do unless that citizen is structurally excluded from the labor market because of disability or, or young age or anything. So that is what defines the precarious liberation of work in the, and, and the precarious liberation of, 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 the, of the South African society under conditions of democratization, that the more workers become uh, frail and embattled and uh, unconducive to decent social existence for the South African working class, and the more it has been put at the center of governmental imagination and uh, governmental normativity when it comes to how the, vir the virtuous citizen is, is, is expected to behave. Evidence of that is the fact that the, well, the South African government under Tabombeki, but I would say there isn't much of a difference in, in, in the current administration, has always made a very stark contrast between uh, work and well, welfare handouts, and it has always tried to use the, the incentive and the injunction to, 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 to look for work, to, to rely on your own economic initiative, and so on, as an alternative to redistributive social policies that have always been presented as conducive to welfare dependency. Well, th that is what basically defines the precariousness of work in South Africa today, this kind of gap between if you want reality and, and, and discourse, I mean, a reality of work that is uh, miserable and, and, and oppressive and, 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 and anxiety-ridden, and this type, this type of state. Uh, clearly, this, uh, this, this idea of precariousness brings us back <coughs> to face this harsh reality, and you've mentioned welfare and um, the fact that the government under Mbeki did introduce some welfare benefits, and of course, the social fabric in South Africa for the majority of the people has traditionally lacked this sort of um, substantial benefits that are often taken for granted in the West, health care benefits and so on and so forth. And there's a whole range of economic issues there to do with um, <coughs> survival, um, health care, um, uh, rent and so on and so forth that, that clearly are very important. But I wonder if we could perhaps also look at the political dimension of this um, issue. And you mentioned uh, the, 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 the new government, uh, the rise of Jacob Zuma and the fall of Thabo Mbeki. We see the alliance, if you like, the alliance of the trade unions of the ANC and SACP back in action. Um, and there's also been a lot of political jostling lately. What does all this political jostling mean for those living precarious lives? And, and how is the South African state coming to terms with these 
structural changes. You mentioned the very high unemployment. You mentioned this dichotomy between the uh, assumption that there is um, employment and the rest of the work, the rest of the population, which is maybe um, caught up in the informal economy or is simply out of work. Um, what is the political dimension of all this? Well, to look at the political dimensions of these problems, I think it would be first useful to try and understand the impact and the implications that these changes have had for the labor movement, because the labor movement in South Africa has always played a very important political role. It was a decisive actor in the, in the anti-party struggle and in the establishment of democracy. The main union federation, COSATU, is of course part of, a, of, a, of, a, of an institutional, formal, organizational alliance with, with the African National Congress in, mm. in, in, in power. And for the labor movement, this new, this, you know, well, this shifting, this changing scenario of employment in South Africa have presented a double challenge. First, the labor movement, has, uh, uh, trade unions, have had important difficulties in trying to represent this, this increasingly fragmented world of employment. I mean, South Africa has a model of industrial unionism whereby a full-time job is very much a condition to, to be a union member and have union representation. And trade unions in South Africa, despite they have tried to define new strategies to recruit precarious workers or casual workers, they have remarkably failed to do so. I mean, that this, I mean the, this type of casualized occupations that are proliferating in construction, in services, in retail, are either largely ununionized or, I mean, largely non-union occupations or unions are losing their capacity to represent them. So that, that is one problem. And the other problem, that's let's say from below. From above, the problem is that, of course, the union's alliance with the ANC has objectively constrained the range of political options that, the or that organized labor has in South Africa, especially because, well, the labor movement has tried to fight its battles at an institutional level by shaping and influencing the dynamics within the alliance with the belief that the African National Congress, despite its ideological uncertainties and its ideological kind of uh, uh, ebbs and flows, nonetheless represents a kind of working class constituency. So this, this, this kind of uh, predicament made of decreasing ability to represent an, an increasingly precarious world of work and employment and the, the narrowing of political options that are determined by alliance politics, alliance obligations for, 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 for COSATU in particular as the, as the overwhelmingly most important union federation, has uh, led the unions to prioritize as a terrain to regain a social influence the attempt to shape leadership dynamics inside the ANC, which has basically led to the by now famous Polo Kwane conference of the ANC in 2007 that resulted in the replacement of Thabo Mbeki with Jacob Zuma. Jacob Zuma that then became president of South Africa with the national elections in 2009. And in that process, trade union Trade unions, organized labor were decisive. I mean, it was, I mean, the, 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 the Polokwane conference that replaced Mbeki with Zuma at the leadership of the ANC was to a large extent, a kind of, or at least to a significant extent, a 
working class insurgency. I mean, a type of mobilization from, uh, in, from, from, from organized labor that was resentful towards Tabombeki, his policies of economic liberalization, his, I mean, like the growth employment and distribution strategy of 1996. And in many ways, Mbeki was seen as a leader that uh, through policies of economic liberalization, market-friendly market interventions, and so on, contributed to this kind of lack of fulfillment of the emancipative promise of work, contributed to, 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 to delay and defer this dream, this possibility of having work with dignity and decent social rights and redistributive policy and so on. And, 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 and organized labor has blamed them for that and has made them, has made them accountable for that. And as a way to regain societal influence, labor unions have basically tried to shape leadership dynamics in the leadership leadership dynamics in the ANC by throwing their lot with 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 with, with Jacob Zuma that managed even if he was never particularly critical of uh, Tabombeki's policies when he was Tabombeki's deputy as a matter of mm -hmm. fact. I mean Zuma managed nonetheless to cultivate uh, union allegiances with a kind of self-consciously populist message. How does that change, I mean, how does that impact? I mean, are the, of course it is, it, is, it is still early to suggest, it is, it is still early to draw conclusions as to how effective trade unions are in trying to regain societal influence by, by, by supporting Jacob Zuma as, as their leader. I mean, the least I can say is that Zuma is surely an unlikely kind of object of working class desire. I mean, it's like, I mean, as I said, he was very deeply implicated with past policies of economic liberalization and so on. Besides, there are other actors uh, that have supported Zuma's rise to power that had their own problems, that had their own grievances towards, towards Tabombeki. And now it seems, by the way, that that coalition, that, that unlikely, unstable coalition that brought Zuma to power, a coalition that included organized labor, and uh, middle class and entrepreneurial sections that were uh, kept aside by, 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 by the, by, by the Mbeki government. That type of coalition is now falling apart. I mean, there, is, there, are, there are increasing increasing signs of conflict and so on. So it is still early to say to what extent labor strategies of inf trying to influence the transition by, uh, by operating at the leadership level in that way has been successful. Yes, uh, clearly uh, there's a lot of concern in South Africa at the moment about unity within the ANC and its alliance partners and been a lot of um, <coughs> mudslinging between the, the ANC Youth League and Kasatu uh, lately. Another aspect here is, is globalization and I'm wondering how does uh, South African workers' precariousness compare with workers say across Africa or globally? To what extent are these things tied into global trends? Or, I mean, there are also, I mean, there has historically been this debate about South African exceptionalism. Uh, others would argue that South Africa is very much influenced, as in manufacturing, by these chilly winds of globalization. Yes, well, there definitely are similarities in the policies of economic liberalization that have been adopted in South Africa and policies of structural adjustment in the rest of the continent. And there are similarities in which globalization has been deployed as a discursive element to try and legitimize these policies of market liberalization as if they were the only alternative available. And there are definitely similarities in the ways in which these policies have 
have uh, impacted the, the, the employed population, I mean, people with, 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 with full-time unionized jobs. So in that sense, there isn't really much space for, 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 for South African exceptionalism. But it is important for me to criticize, I mean, to, to, uh, to try and transcend this, this, this view of, of South Africa as an exceptional reality also in a historical terms, not only by making reference to, to globalization, because there are many dynamics in the precariousness of work and employment that one sees across South African history that, are, that reflect uh, what has been going on in the rest of the continent during and after colonialism. In particular, I'm referring to the fact that even if in South Africa you have this powerful tradition of organized working class and labor struggles that, may, that has made many scholars talk about the South African exceptionalism, at the same time in South Africa, and that is something that historians haven't really looked at, especially uh, with the rise of trade unions and the rise of trade union politics in the 1970s and the 1980s, in South Africa, wage labor, employment, I mean, working for wages, capitalist relations of employment, have been an object of contestation, have been actively resisted, have been actively uh, subverted, if not actually refused. Many scholars talk about that, confine this type of discussion to pre-colonial times, like I mean, peasant societies, resistance to proletarianization, and so on. Well, in my book, for example, I argued that there is a tradition of proletarian insubordination through refusal of work, refusal of, 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 of wage employment, refusal of capitalist employment that has been as important and as persistent as the tradition of uh, organized labor resistance and to capture a full picture of the, of, of the, of the disruptive potential of the South African working class towards the, the apartheid regime, one has to take both sides into consideration. And this whole element of resistance to wage employment has been very persistent and has surfaced over and over again, I mean, up to the very end of apartheid. I mean, Apartheid politicians were very concerned that in their they, they were trying in, at the end of apartheid to establish waged employment as a condition for urban residential rights for a section of the African population so that that section could be more or less co-opted by the government. And the main concern they had is that well, black people, African people in South Africa didn't want to work in the factories. And so that, 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 that doomed that whole experiment to, to, to failure. So there is the, this whole tradition which is, in which is very much in common with African, I mean, working class struggles in other parts of Africa. And I think there is something true in what Fred Cooper among other, and, and other historians have been argued that the most immediate struggle of South African working classes has been their attempt to, their, their attempt to avoid becoming working classes, their attempt to avoid becoming permanently incorporated in capitalist production relations. And that is important to, for our discussion of precariousness because it reveals, an it, it, it reveals a, 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 a crucial fact. That is to say, precariousness is not only a condition of disempowerment and, 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 and oppression and vulnerability as it is under the current scenarios of globalization, as it is under this type of uh, market-friendly but at the same time employment-obsessed social policies that we are having at the moment in South Africa as in many other places and not only in Africa. But at the same time, precariousness across the history of, 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 of African labor struggles and South African labor struggles, precariousness also provided an asset for, 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 
worker imagination and, 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 and worker political and, and, and the political possibilities that the workers were pushing forward. I mean, a recurrent theme in, again, just to say it again, Fred Cooper's study of, of, of dock workers in Mombasa, Kenya. I mean, he basically argued that in the transition from colonialism to independence, I mean, dock workers in Mombasa chose casual jobs, chose to be precarious, chose to, uh, to be irregularly and unstably incorporated in capitalist production relations because that allowed them to keep other networks of other social networks, social safety nets, networks of livelihood alive, and at the same time, in doing that, they very much consciously rejected incorporation in capitalist production relations. So that is another. So there are two type of reasonings that should caution us against the dangers of South African exceptionalism. First, in the fact that the type of policies that are being pushed forward, that have been pushed forward throughout the democratic transition in South Africa, policies that have tried to put at the center of social existence a, 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 an employment status that is becoming so, so precarious and, embat and embattled, they are not exceptional at all. I mean, they are very much reflected across across the geographical spectrum and not only in, 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 and not only in Africa. So that is the, let's say, the a pessimistic reason why we should not uh, indulge with South, South African exceptionalism as a view. That, but then there is also an optimistic reason, that is to say the fact that in South Africa, as in the rest of the continent, this ability that working class struggles have had to use precariousness as an asset, use precariousness and casualization as a way to contest, to negotiate, to subvert capitalist production relations. That is a very important theme historically, and maybe one of the reasons, one, 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 one of the challenges that trade unions have to face right now, even if they don't clearly identify, maybe they don't clearly identify that challenge as such, is how to revive that type of tradition, how to revive that type of history. How can, under the conditions of, of globalized neoliberalism, how can precariousness become again a condition of political possibility? What type of social claims can a precarious working class have that are not premised on this idea of full-time employment, full-time capitalist relations of production that are becoming totally elusive by now. Right. These are very interesting research questions, and I want to come back in a minute to talk about the motivations of these labor movements, but I wonder if you could just tell us a little about your own background and how you came to be absorbed in these, these interesting questions. Well, yeah, I became absorbed in these questions in from a, from a personal and a, and a political slash ideological point of view, I guess. I mean, like, I mean, I originally started studying South African labor movements and South African working class struggles when I was in, in Italy. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm Italian by nationality, and that, that I mean, they, I was conducting my undergraduate degree at the University of Bologna, and that involved researching. I mean, it was I wrote a thesis on South African labor struggles from the 1970s to the end of the 1980s, and that involved doing research there on the field. And I was really in interested in, 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 the, in these issues because, well, I've always had this, a certain type of kind of, of course, left type of ideological background. And at the time, I mean, it was the 1980s in Italy, where, I mean, Europe as such were very lousy times. I mean, it was like times of kind of I guess, neoliberal counter-revolution and, and total dismantling of working-class struggle. South Africa was, for me, enormously 
inspiring because it was one of the very few cases in the world where you had this kind of radical trade union movement that was actually growing, expanding, and having a significant impact on, on, on political change. It was very inspiring even by looking at, at, at the African continent at the time, I mean, an African continent in which often labor movements were very, were, very, were very important in igniting a democratic transition, but then after the democratic transition came, labor yeah. movements had been dismantled and immobilized yeah. because policies of structural adjustment have remained in place. And South Africa was, for me, this kind of uh, beacon of hope in many ways, I mean, that is to say. A and at the same time, it, 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 it was also important because, it, it was also an interesting case because I th at the time there was a vibrant discussion, not only among scholars and academics, but within the trade unions themselves, as to what extent union, trade unions could were not necessarily the core of working class identities, but were somehow the catalyst of a, of, of a kind of proletarian subjectivity that drew from community themes, uh, pre-capitalist cultural formations, uh, and, 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 and so on and so forth, in which the the, the, there was like, a, my, my impression at the time was that there was a very rich and diversified working class subjectivity that used trade unions for, 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 for institutional purposes or to gain uh, benefits and, uh, and 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 uh, and 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 material achievements in the, in, 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 in the in the workplace, but at the same time, that trade union was for me an expression of the cultural and political autonomy of the working class, and that and I found that immensely inspiring at the time. And that in turn drew you to South Africa, and, yes. then, and thence to the U.S. today. So, yeah. You must have had interesting uh, experiences in South Africa. Yeah, well, I've, I, I, I've lived there for eight years, 1994 to 2002. That was just after the I mean, I arrived there just after the election, so that contributed somehow to, to my interest in, in, in kind of radical politics there, not only working class politics, but because there was this whole idea of that 1994 was that period of, of there was this impression of unlimited or almost unlimited possibility and, and, and expectation and hope and it wasn't clear at the time to many including myself that the ANC as the as the as the as the, as the would-be party in, in, in power had already compromised at, at many levels with, with 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 the previous government and with international financial institutions and, and, and international economic actors but so there was this possibility, this, this 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 impression that possibilities were still open. Then, of course, that impression. I mean, we all had a very rude awakening in 1996 when gear was passed and growth employment and redistribution strategy and the new kind of policies of economic liberalization. And then, uh, at a closer look, it became clear to me how that type of outcome was already very much determined by 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 by, by an ideological shift in the liberation movement that had been taking place throughout the 1980s, I mean, if, 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 not, if, if, not, if not earlier than that. And that is what actually eventually motivated my need to go beyond organized trade union politics, organized working class politics, which was the initial topic of my, of my of, of, of the, the initial subject of my research, and try to look at this whole question as of how working classes, working people, working families in their ordinary everyday life understand work and employment, the type of desires it enables, the type of expectations it has, and how the government, how democracy has responded to those, to those uh, expectations and those desires. And, 
and, and try to study what are the political possibilities that are opened by this gap that I, that I was talking about before. Right. I, I wonder if we can go beyond uh, the motivations of your own research and look at the, what motivates these movements, either labor or community. And unions and community struggles often provide a, a viable uh, arena to try and realize basic needs. Or what motivates them? Well, I mean, South Africa, there has been this kind of powerful resurgence over the past, the, over the, over the past uh, 10 years, I would say, of community struggles for service delivery, which in many ways recover, retrieve what used to be an, an important component of, 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 of older labor struggles, that is to say the issue of decommodification. I mean, the fact that, I mean, social rights and social provisions must, should be provided uh, regardless to the individual's position in the labor market, regardless to the individual's employment status. And this idea of decommodification has, has inspired many of the struggles and the social movements that have taken place over questions of access to water and electricity and what, what the government defines as service delivery protests. And decommodification really, I suppose, at its base is sort of implying a, yes. a, a humanization of work, of, of, of getting away from treating workers as commodities, yes. uh, that sort of thing. Yes, exactly. I mean, that is to say, the commodification implies the idea that the type of services, the type of benefits, the type of, uh, of, of social assets that you have access, as, uh, the, 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 the social assets that you have access as, as, as part of your, of, of your everyday life and, 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 and reproduction are not just, should not just depend on how able you are to sell your labor power. And these struggles over decommodification, this struggle for access to water, water electricity, or services provided on a, on a redistributive basis, are as much a political consequence of the precariousness of employment as, the as, 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 as what we were talking about before, when, uh, about trade unions and, and, and the support for Zuma. I would say that is the kind of grassroots, ordinary, everyday political consequence of this growing precariousness of employment. That is to say, as employment is failing in its promise to provide for social inclusion, then right. people find, communities find other ways, and hence you have the situation whereby, like, today you have, like, five to 6,000 protests every year, prote protests of this kind every year, according to the South African government. The problem is that trade unions are not very well connected to these to this dynamics. I mean, trade unions are often suspicious of them because they think that they are anti-governmental, anti-ANC, anti-alliance, and often the tr tr trade unions look at these community protests, these new social movements, not as a, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a possibility to renew their own politics, their own claims, their own demands, but as a nuisance, as something that is, is needlessly disruptive and, and potentially endangering their, their relationship with the ANC. A final question then on, on these social movements. Uh, uh, theoretical question. Social movement unionism was something that uh, you and Bridget Kenny, amongst others, have addressed, and especially its prescriptive applications. And other authors, Eddie Webster, Rob Lambert, Carl von Holt, Peter Waterman, etc., have written on this concept of social movement unionism. Given all these precariousnesses that you've been talking about, how useful is this concept today? Well, I mean, social movement unionism, uh, like, to capture that 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 climate of hope and expectation and uh, and and uh, and desire for a kind of revolutionary transformation driven by the working class, social movement unionism was one of the main concepts that were used for 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 for, the, for, the, for that purpose. 
at the time. I mean, this whole idea that uh, South African labor movements were so powerful, so influential, because they connected to community struggles, and that's how they, they brought apartheid down, and, and so on and so forth. Well, that in, 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 the, in, in, the in the work that you mentioned before, that they did, that they did with Bridget Kenny, I mean, we criticize the notion of social movement unionism not only in terms of how it can be applied to the present, but also historically. I mean, to the, the, the application to the present of social movement unionism is, in, 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 in our view, very limited by the fact because basically that idea was premised on the assumption that employment, again, could be a generalizable social condition and a condition that could develop a higher form of political consciousness capable of rallying around worker struggles, the struggles of, 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 of communities. I mean, in, social in, in what we call social movement unionism, trade unions had, had this whole idea of the working class as leading community struggles for revolutionary and socialist transformation. And that assumption is highly problematic today because right. of the type of changes that have taken place in employment today, that have taken right. place in, in, in the world of employment. But I also think that that concept of social movement unionism need to be rethought historically, I mean, in relation to, 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 to the anti-apartheid struggle, because it was clear, it is clear to me, that that concept had a lot to do with the strategies and the, 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 the need of academics and labor leaders to build a unifying narrative that could justify the trade, trade union's participation in a broader societal coalition that by then was already going in the direction of the alliance with the ANC. So social movement unionism was to a very large extent even then a, a leadership project rather than something that was materially experienced by, 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 by workers in their everyday life. I mean, in, in, in the everyday life, in, in, in workers' ordinary lives, alliances between trade unions and, and community struggles were often very contingent, were often very contested, and, and, and were very uneven in, in, in geographically and, 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 and socially. Right. Well, there's, there's much in your work to help us understand uh, today's trends, and I'm sure also it will assist scholars working on the past as well as the present of Africa. And we look very I look forward very much to your new book, and thanks for talking to Africa Past and Present. Thank you, thank you for having me. Africa Past and Present is produced by Matrix, the Center for Humane Arts, Letters, and Social Sciences Online at Michigan State University. Our producer is Scott Pennington. Technical assistance is provided by Alicia Scheel and the Matrix staff. For more information about this and other episodes, and to subscribe to the podcast, you can visit our website at afripod, that's A-F-R-I-P-O-D, dot A-O-D-L dot O-R-G. Africa Past and Present is also available on iTunes and other podcatcher sites. To get in touch with us, send us email at africa.podcast at matrix.msu.edu. Thanks for listening. <laughs>